This time you can turn to Psalm 54. Psalm 54, we're taking a break from our series in 1 Samuel. Be back in it next week um, for our communion meditation this morning. We'll be looking at Psalm 54. It's only seven verses, very short. But don't get your hopes up. Might not mean a short sermon, okay? I saw some smiles. I want to give a quick announcement before we jump in, and that's about communion and the process of the way we do it. And I'm about to make some people very happy, some people sad, and some people I don't really care. You know, you, 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 don't, really, you don't really have an opinion. But the, the elders have been discussing and praying about how do we do communion and what's the best way to do it for our congregation. And just to give some context, in the past uh, 10 plus years of Hope's existence, we had you all sit in your seats and we would come to you to provide communion to you. And then Around COVID, that started to change, and we had you come forward, and we, we tried that for a while, but we've decided this next month to go back to sitting communion. So we'll be coming, passing the trays uh, uh, row by row. Um, and that's just, we, 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 we liked coming forward. There was aspects of that we liked. There's aspects that we missed about passing the plate. There's time of, more time to meditate um, and contemplate uh, Jesus, and so that's good as well. So we're going to be going back to that. That way, and, and, and whether or not you're happy or sad or indifferent, let's all just be thankful that we get to that we get to take communion, right? That we get to commune with Christ, and that we're going to prepare our hearts to do that this this morning. So that's a good thing. So I just wanted to give you that quick announcement. So that'll be next month. This is our last time that we're doing a walk-up communion. Um, so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 54. This is God's holy word to the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer and give ear to my word, the words of my mouth for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and in your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is God's word. You may be seated. And pray with me. Father, in the words of Moses, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Father, would you bless us as we hear your word this morning. Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most famous scenes in the Old Testament is, is Moses in the burning bush, chapter 3 of Exodus, when he comes before this bush that is uh, inflamed in the desert, but it's not being consumed. And thus begins this conversation between Moses and God. And in verse 13 of chapter 3 in Exodus, Moses asked this question. 
And if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he also said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Two important things that God tells Moses about his name. The first is I am. That's where the word Yahweh comes from. And it comes from the verb to be in Hebrew, meaning to exist. And so God is telling Moses, I am, I I exist, I am self-existent, I am eternal. I'm not reliant upon my creation. I'm not reliant upon anything in the world. I am outside of it. That's the first thing he tells him about his name. The second thing he tells him about his name, which is important, is that he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He, He links himself with his people. So he's a God that is transcendent, but he's a God who's close to his people. You see, names are important. Names, um, they help us give us an identity of who we are. It identifies who we are and where we've come from. That's why name-calling is so hurtful, isn't it? If you've ever grown up in, in school, ever been bullied or called a name, you probably still think back to the names you were called, don't you? It was hurtful. It sticks with you. Name calling is designed to shame us to our core, to put a label on us, to identify us in a certain way that's not true of us. But names are important. And names are important all throughout the Bible as well. And it's also important as to the name of the one we pray to. It matters who we pray to. Praying to Allah will not save you. Praying to the universe will not save you. However, praying to the revealed God of the Bible will save you. That's the one place we can go to know we're going to be heard and know that God will answer us. And so what's David's situation in this psalm? Well, if you recall, he's on the run. He's a fugitive in Israel. As we've been preaching through 1 Samuel 23, what, what I like about Pairing the psalm is with, with that is we get, to, we get to see what was going on in David's heart as he pens these psalms, these prayers to God in these situations of him being on the run. Remember, Saul is in power. And he's coming after David. He does not want David to be alive. He's trying to kill him. And David is running around Israel trying to find relief from Saul. And as he's running around, he gets in, psalm, in, in 1 Samuel 23, There is this group called the Ziphites, and they tell Saul that they know where David is. It says in verse 19 of chapter 23, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at uh, Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? And it's not just there that they try to get David penned. in, In chapter 26, they do the same thing. And the Ziphites came to Saul 
at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is in the east of Jeshimon? And what makes this really hard is the Ziphites are actually from the same tribe of David. They're his own, his own people. And so here we find David in the wilderness with no home as a fugitive in Israel. But we also see this is where he finds security with God. This is where he finds friendship with God as he enters into prayer. Spurgeon wrote on this psalm, the vigor of faith is the death of anxiety. The vigor of faith is the death of anxiety and the birth of security. When we in the wilderness and trials and sufferings act in faith, it kills anxiety and it gives us security. Mike Reeves, a professor of theology, says, Praying is enjoying and pleading for the friendship and the friendly assistance of God. Our Heavenly Father and friend wants us to persevere in our prayers. So it's in the wilderness, it's in the suffering, it's in the trials we go through. That is where God meets us in prayer. So the main point I want to leave you with this morning is that God gives us urgent prayer in times of great need to produce trust in his promises and thankfulness for his protection. And so in this psalm, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the urgency of prayer. We're going to see the reason for prayer. And we're going to see the trust and thankfulness of prayer. Those three things. First, we'll start with the urgency of prayer. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. Look at the first four words of this psalm. O God, save me. Do you you sense the urgency in David's voice? Did you notice he doesn't begin his prayer with adoration? He begins his prayer with supplication. He runs straight to God with this urgent plea for help. You see, we don't have to be formulaic in our prayers, although formulas can help us, and and I would recommend them to you. You don't always have to go to God with the right formula. You see, prayer is a tool that God has given us to cry out to him as a baby cries out for her mother and father. It's like when my child get, gets hurt or falls, which for one of my kids, it's every day. They skin their knee and they fall. I want them to run to me urgently. Right? I don't want them to have to think through all the things they're going to have to explain or say to me. I don't want them to fear if they come to me, I say, did you make an appointment with your mother? This is not the right time. You're not doing this in the correct order. No, they're in tears. Maybe they have a bloody knee. I want them to come to me urgently so I can hug them, put a Band-Aid on their boo-boo. You see, prayer is a tool that God's given us to cry out to him. Spurgeon writes, when his case, when David's case had become dangerous, remember his life is at stake, David could not afford to pray out of mere custom He must succeed in his pleadings or become the prey of his adversary. This was life or death for David. And so this was an urgent prayer for salvation. 
Paul Washer writes that some matters in the Christian life must be dealt with urgently and severely. A heart that is apathetic and lethargic in seeking to know Christ is one of them. Are you like that today? Are you lethargic in your wanting to know Christ? Are you lethargic? Are you apathetic, indifferent about your relationship with Christ? That's not a good place to be. You need to be urgent about figuring out who Christ is and who you are. Be urgent about it. Come right to God and ask Him to save you, to reveal Himself to you. Don't waste time. I'm a pretty big sports fan. Um, I, mean, I know there's, there are bigger fans out there, but, and I get into the game sometimes, but the most frustrated I get at my team that I'm cheering on is, is, is when the clock is running down a minute, 30 seconds, and it doesn't seem like they're in a hurry. Like, what are, they, what are you doing? Like, hurry up. You're running out of time. You're going to lose the game. You have to be urgent sometimes in life. Some things in life, you need to step back and deliberate and take your time, but some things you need to be urgent with. And that's the type of prayer we hear in verse 1 and 2. God, save me by your name. And then he says, vindicate me. In the Hebrew, the word is really, judge me, God. Judge me. Put your standard upon me and see if I am right in the right. He's crying out for justice. He knows God is a God of justice and righteousness. And David knows he's in the right. He should not be pursued by these people. Now, he isn't saying he's sinless. He's not saying he's spotless and perfect. But he's saying his cause is just. And that God is on his side. Vindicate me by your might. The third appeal, he says, Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Notice what he says. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Not all of your praying should be in your head or or quiet. You should actually speak your prayers out as, as David is doing here. Don't shy away from vocalizing your prayers. Even if people might hear you, might think you're crazy, vocalize your prayers, even in private. Spurgeon writes, vocal prayer helps the supplicant, the prayer. And we we keep our minds more fully awake when we can use our tongues as well as our hearts. So say that prayer out loud. And so you can see David is struggling. He's crying out for help. And even when you are struggling, not, not necessarily in life experiences out there or feeling persecution, but feeling your own sense of sin within. There should be an urgency to our prayer. And just to encourage you, struggling with your sin is not a sign of spiritual death. It's quite the opposite. Struggling with your sin is a sign of spiritual life. If you didn't struggle with your sin, that would be death. Because those who aren't alive to Christ... They have no problem with sin. But if you are struggling, if, you are, if you're trying to put your sins to death, that's a sign of life. And this is the prayer of spiritual life that we see with David. But I want to go back to the very first line. He says, Oh God, save me by your name. There is power in God's name. And this is where David finds his courage to pray these prayers because of God's name. He bases his request in the name of God. Why? 
Because God's name encompasses his character and his promises to be gracious and hear us. It's all wrapped up in his name. We heard these words from from Samuel back in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel in his prayer to the people. He says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And we hear this phrase for his namesake again and again through the psalm. Psalm 23, for instance, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 31, 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Psalm 106, verse 8. Yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. Psalm 109, 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake. And Psalm 143, verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So you've got to understand, God had linked his name with his people. He'd not only linked his name, but he'd linked his reputation on his people in this covenant of grace that he made with Israel. Remember when he said, and he said this several times throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He links his reputation with his people. That's why again and again the Israelites say, Lord, save us because of your name, because of your glory. If you notice, Christians, we pray in Jesus' name. We we conclude our prayers with, in Jesus' name. Why do we do that? Well, Martin Luther insisted that, quote, Christians do not base their prayer on themselves, but on the name of the Son of God, in whose name they've been baptized. And they are certain that praying in this way is pleasing to God because he told us to pray in the name of Christ and has promised to hear us. Luther said, asking in the name of Christ really means relying on him in such a way that we are accepted and heard for his sake. Not for our own sake. Our prayer must be centered on him alone. John 14, Jesus writes that if you ask in my name, this will I do. So that's why we we conclude our prayer always with in Jesus' name because it's for his sake, our mediator, that our our prayer is even heard. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it outlines and explains the Lord's Prayer line by line. And in the section on hallowed be thy name, it explains what that means. What does it mean to hallow God's name in the Lord's Prayer? It writes that it means... Help us to really know you, to bless, to worship and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them. Your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy and truth. And it means help us to direct all our living, what we think, we say and do so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us. 
but always honored and praised. It's the idea that a part of keeping the third commandment, not blaspheming God's name, is to pray. When we, when we put the, that commandment positively, to use God's name is to really to hallow it, to pray to God and to not take it in vain. I heard this story recently of a fellow pastor who, when he was before he was a Christian, he was in the military. And um, so this is before he was a Christian, and he would take the, the name of the Lord in vain all the time, along with other curse words. And he remembered this one Christian in the barracks who, every time he took the, names, uh, the name of the Lord in vain, this Christian would say, would you please not do that? Please don't do that. Um, and he said, looking back, he became a Christian later, but looking back, he said that, like he disagreed with that guy, but it bothered him that he would say that, that he would say not to do that. It stuck with him. And so I would encourage you, if you hear people do that, speak up. You never know how God might use that later in their life to say, look, I was, I was convicted by what I was doing, taking the Lord's name in vain. And as we go to the New Testament, we, we see that the name of God comes to its fulfillment, its culmination in the very name of Christ. We read this in our assurance of pardon from Acts 4, that this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, and he's become the cornerstone. In verse 12 of Acts 4, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's in the very name of Jesus that we can be saved. Paul says in Philippians 2 something very similar that at the name of Jesus, that his name is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. The name of God is powerful, and it's the reason for our boldness and our confidence in going to the Lord in prayer. Well, that's the first idea. The second from this psalm is that we see the reason for prayer. We see the urgency of prayer, but we also now see the reason for prayer. What is the reason that David has for praying? We'll look at verse 3. He says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Remember, as I, I said earlier, David had been sold out to Saul. His place of hiding had been revealed, and now David had to go on the run again as Saul was going to come and seek his life. And again, who were these Ziphites? The Ziphites were Israelites, and they were even of the same tribe of David, of Judah, and that, yet their betrayal of David was so contrary to both David and God's cause that David, what does he call them here? He calls them strangers, doesn't he? These were men of the same tribe, and he's calling them strangers as oppressors who sought David's life. Brothers and sisters, betrayal, pain, and hurt should lead us into prayer. It should lead us closer to God. You see, as we outline the life of Saul and the life of David, we see two very different trajectories, don't we? Saul was the first king who was anointed. And what do we see in his life? We see early success, don't we? We see early success 
but a lack of humility. And that goes to show us that there's a real danger to someone, anybody in life, any job you have. If you have early success, but not, you do not have humility, things will go bad for you in the end. It's not the trajectory of David. David is anointed in secret. David has early suffering, which builds humility. He did not have early success, David. He, he struggled. He was Obviously, he was on the run for most of, the, of his early days as king, as anointed. But what that did is it brought a closeness to God in the wilderness. You see, going through uniquely painful trials should do several things. The first thing it should do is reveal God anew. In fresh ways, God should be revealed to you. You see, trials are opportunities for God to show up. And it shows you he's not absent. He's not aloof in your suffering. I ran across this article from a man named Daniel Ritchie who was born without, literally without arms. So if you're ever having a bad day, just think about him. He was not born with arms, but he found a lot of comfort in uh, the writings of C.S. Lewis, particularly in Lewis's work called The Problem of Pain. Daniel Ritchie writes that Lewis had tasted pain in ways that few can relate to. He lost his mother at an early age. He saw his dad emotionally abandon him. He suffered from a respiratory illness as a teenager. He fought and was wounded in World War I, and he finally had to bury his beloved wife. Yet through all this, Lewis wrote about all of his heartache in the work The Problem of Pain. And in the work, Lewis penned one of the most famous lines, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Love that line. He whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We are most keenly aware of God's character in our suffering. It's when our self-sufficiency is peeled away that we see how weak we really are. And it's in the moment of weakness that, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. It's in our pain that God has has us taste his power most intimately. I don't know what kind of pain you're struggling with right now, or you have experienced in the past year or months. But pain leads us into dependent, humble prayer. It ought to. And in that time, it causes us to grow, brother and sister. You do not grow as a Christian when life is easy. It's not going to happen. God designs it for our good and his glory. doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean we should wish for it. But that's how he grows us. The second thing these trials and pain reveal to us is it reveals forgotten promises. Sometimes we just forget the promises of God, don't we? We forget what he says, that he will keep us. He'll never forsake us. He's always with us. When he says to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Trials are meant to strip us of confidence in ourselves, but look to God's promises. 
It should also do a third thing. It should renew unused graces, that he has equipped us with graces, these means of grace that should help us, that should encourage us, that should nourish us. Trials are designed to change us. Remember that. Trials are designed to change us. It's in the moment of trial or pain, maybe you can relate to this, that Scripture comes alive. That Scripture jumps off the page at you. That prayer becomes a lifeline. Without pain and trial, sometimes prayer is a drudgery. But in the time of pain, it is a lifeline that you need. Fellowship as well becomes a necessity. You cannot make it during pain and suffering without the fellowship of the church. The last thing pain should do is it should begin new praises. It should cause you to praise God all the more. Trials are meant to lead us into worship. Worship should not be a burden, but a blessing. Many people are asking these days, how can you still be a Christian if you don't go to church? I, I see that as asking this similar question. Can you live without oxygen? Yeah, for a while. But not in the end. You need to be in worship. You need to be with your pe- the people of God. You need to be in fellowship. Especially when you're in trials and suffering. The third main idea of this prayer of David is is that we see the trust and the thankfulness of prayer. Trust and thankfulness of prayer. Looking at verses 4 through 7. Behold, he says, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. David here is trusting in God's ability to save him, not his own ability. We see that David understands that God is his helper and God upholds all of our lives. Jesus writes in John 10, or says to us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. God is the one holding David up here and he holds us up. But also notice what David says about his enemies. David trusts in God's abilities to punish evil as well. And he says in verse 5, he'll, re- he'll return the evil to my enemy. So the evil they're doing is going to befall them. This is true for all evil. Since God is a God of justice, either Christ pays for your sins and is punished for your sins, or you will be punished for your sins. Why? Because God is a God of justice. Evil will always ultimately befall evildoers. And God will destroy all who are opposed to him. It's a sobering line. Look look at that again in verse 5. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Other translations say, destroy them. Pretty bold words for his enemies, isn't it? He uses an imperative. Destroy them, God. Wipe them out. Well, can we really pray that? How do we deal with the imprecations in the Psalms where we see these kind of curses? Well, in our Friday morning Bible study, we were going through Matthew 11. And we get to this place where Jesus uh, is speaking and he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you, be brought, you will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Intense words from Jesus. We don't typically think of Jesus' words in terms of judgment. And so what does that mean for us? Of course, evil will, will be judged. Justice will come. But what is our job? What is our job? Certainly, we should keep preaching the gospel. We should be wanting people to be saved, of course, never giving up on people, but wanting justice and Jesus to return is right. We should want that. We should want justice. We should want evil to be punished in the end. You can want both of those things, and that is the calling of believers. And so we see that David is sure of that. He's sure of God's ability to punish evil, which leads him into thankfulness, doesn't it? He's thankful. Look at verse 6. For with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I'll give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Spurgeon writes that no one can praise the Lord so well as those who have tried and proved the preciousness of his name in seasons of adversity. When you have tested the Lord's name, his goodness to you in seasons of adversity, you will praise the Lord like never before. And what is a free will offering? What is David saying here in verse 6? He says, with a free will offering, I'll sacrifice to you. See, there were many offerings that were obligatory, that you had to make these offerings in the Old Testament. But a free will offering was a, one of thanks. It wasn't demanded. It was not required. And he's saying, I give thanks to you, O Lord. I will give you this offering. I'll give thanks to your name. Because you will deliver me from my trouble. Spurgeon continues, he says, It's a great use to our souls to be much in praise. We're never so holy or so happy as when our adoration of God abounds. Well, as we think about this as Christians and as we turn to the Lord's table, where do we most clearly look upon our enemy's triumph? It's the cross of Christ, isn't it? That's where our ultimate enemy is is defeated. And the entirety of the Christian life is one of thankfulness for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary for our sins. That is our greatest reason to be thankful, isn't it? Is that your thankfulness this morning? Where we see our highest victory and where we see God identifying with His people most clearly, as Jesus took on our flesh and then as he took on our sin, it's where we see that God identifies his name with his people, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. He identifies with those that he loves. You see, the most important thing about you, if you trust in Christ, is that you're not identified by your sin anymore, but your Savior You see, one of Satan's main goals for you is that he wants to define you by your sins. He wants to remind you of your sins and define you by them and shame you with them. But God gives us his own name, doesn't he? 
in Revelation 22, it says that they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We're going to have his name imprinted on us. And Paul reminds us, if, if, you're, if you are struggling with your own doubt and sin and shame, he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes that such were some of you. He lists all these sins that people can be defined by and define themselves by. But it says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's in the name of God that we are justified. And we have this family name. When we come to the table, we, we're invited to the table as a member of God's family. And the greatest uh, identification of who you are is a child of God. Paul writes in, in Galatians 3, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you that were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so now, look at these identification markers he places here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you have told us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, Father, we thank you that you provide for every need, most importantly, our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst, which is satisfied in Christ. So thank you for this meal. Father, give us greater and greater unity with each other as the body of Christ and with our head, Jesus our Savior. In his, his name we pray. Amen.